My name is M. Jason Graham, and this is the M. Jason Graham Show. Thermodynamic Living Feeling the Flow The past 18 months have forced us to challenge so-called best practices and to live our lives with more daily intention. I have to admit, the episodes have gotten longer, but as you can tell, both guests and content have become more nuanced. For me, the conversations for each episode have created a season that is more a patchwork quilt than an industrial comforter. That being said, I'm always open to feedback. So this interview will be cut across two episodes. This week's guest is Mr. Andre Henderson Sr. He is a serial entrepreneur, engineer, salesman, and owner of Advanced Energy LLC. During this episode, we focus on his personal journey and what led him to become an entrepreneur. As usual, I can be reached by emailing the MJG show at mjgstorycreation.com. And now, Mr. Andre Henderson, Sr. Mr. Andre Henderson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, would you tell us about your background and what you do? Okay. My background started out in technology, actually in started in high school. I went to uh, Tulsa Area Vocational School and took technical electronics. I also went to a somewhat famous high school in Tulsa, Oklahoma, known for Black Wall Street, a school called Booker T. Washington, the Hornets. And my junior and senior year, I went to Votech, took technical electronics, and just always had this fascination for how things worked. And then once I figured out how they worked, then that helped me understand how to fix them. And so that was something that I think was naturally in me, which has kind of given me the drive to do what I've done for a profession, which is basically solve problems. That's, that's kind of how I look at it. I simplify a lot of things to make it really easy. Um, so after finishing school, getting a degree in engineering, I worked in corporate America. I started out in uh, board level design. I worked in the telecommunications industry. I worked in the printing industry. Uh, I worked on some very interesting technologies like ion deposition. I worked with Sprint bringing fiber optic to the curve. Uh, I also worked on one of the first store and forward video systems that was used in the lodging industry. Uh, That technology today is now called on-demand. I also have remote control patents associated with that technology where this remote control was used to communicate to a set-top box. That set-top box then communicated to a video distribution system, and that allowed customers to either order movies in their room or make purchases. And so uh, from working in technology and working in a design group after, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 years in design, maybe 15 years in design, the company I was working for, Spectrodyne at the time, was bought by a company out in California. And me being from Tulsa, Oklahoma, anybody knows anything about Oklahoma, it's somewhat rural or country. And I just, I had family in California and it just wasn't the place for me, you know. Uh, so 
I had some people that were salespeople, actually sales engineers, that worked for a distribution company that used to call on the company or call on me when I was an engineer there. And they heard about what was going on and asked me if I'd be interested in a field applications engineer position, which initially I thought this was something I wouldn't be interested in at all because it sounded like it was associated with sales. And all my life I had been a design engineer. And lo and behold, it was something that was a, a great fit for me and really trained me for what I do for a living now. Um, as a field apps engineer, my job was to go out with the outside salesperson, uh, go to a company, say like Abbott Laboratories, and they're working on a new blood analyzer equipment. Well, my job was to find products that we had and get them on that company's approved vendor list, anywhere from integrated circuits to display units to passive components like capacitors and resistors or whatever I could get on the approved vendor list. And then once we got on the approved vendor list, I would switch hats. Then I would go talk to the purchasing or the procurement people, explain to them what we've got our design in on your engineering product that's coming out in the next 18 months and so forth. Then I'd work on scheduling a purchase order so that we would secure the work that was done as far as getting the design in on the product. And um, I worked several years as a field apps engineer. I worked for LSI Logic, uh, which is an original equipment manufacturer. I worked for All American Semiconductor, which was a distributor. And then I worked for the my last time working in corporate America. I worked for a company called ATS, which was a rep firm. And as a field apps engineer and getting the opportunity to work for a distributor, working for an OEM, and working for a rep firm, I basically came to my wife one day and said, hey, you know what? What I do for these people, I can do for myself. And I had just brought some new manufacturers to this rep firm based on previous work that I did for them. Uh, I think it was probably in my distribution days, but I was able to develop relationships with these manufacturers and bring these to these rep firms. So I decided to kind of stretch out on my own and started a small consulting firm uh, advanced NRG Solutions, and we were growing, you know, doing our little thing, but because I had a direct relationship with manufacturers as opposed to having a product where I stored inventory and then was able to sell that product, the business that I was successful in was had a very small sweet spot. If the opportunity was large that I felt was going to be profitable for me, I ended up competing against companies like GE or Sylvania, and I would lose out on those opportunities because I just didn't have the resources. If the opportunity was maybe something I could have easily closed, this customer wants 20, 50 pieces of some product. Well, he's not ordering enough product because of the relationship I have with my manufacturer. They're overseas. The shipping cost is going to negate that being a profitable. So I would have to take that opportunity, send it to some distributor, and then make the commission off of referring that sale to that particular distributor and that just didn't work and uh after kind of morphing it oh let me back up i did end up getting into a legal issue and had to change my company name from advanced energy solutions to what it is today which is advanced energies llc really and uh yeah and that was actually a very interesting uh uh an interesting ordeal because uh when i was served papers behind it it was uh 
trademark infringement because I had the letters NRG in my company name. And my, you know, my, my defense was there's over 200 companies out there that has NRG in their name. So why are you picking on me? <laughs> <laughs> and that was really my, that was really my defense. Uh, but the bottom line is the way my webpage was designed, it was before I even understood what search engine optimization was. I had had, because I did the website myself, I had had uh, metadata on each page, which out, which actually optimized it. So a lot of times when people were looking for NRG, they were finding my company and not theirs. And so their IT people flagged it, and I ended up getting to be a target. And uh, But it turned out okay, because uh, when I redesigned the company logo based on the new name, I liked the new logo better than the old logo. Um, and the company, again, morphed after that because we we went from trying to be a, a small independent rep firm and then dealing with the problems that we had, as I explained earlier, about the size of opportunities, the really big ones, the competition I had to deal with, the really small ones I couldn't close. I had to transfer them because of those sweet spot areas. Uh, I, I started focusing more on the consulting side. And I... Again, because I've always had these business development relationships, I decided that instead of me trying to rep these different products, because all of my manufacturers were typically overseas, and instead of me buying some building and trying to be a distributor and then storing these products and overheading, you know, producing a lot of overhead for me to, to pay for, uh, I found it a way, or I discovered a way to structure a business that was profitable to me, but also gave me multiple tools to be able to solve problems for my customers. Meaning that I structured a LLC and instead of me going out and seeking uh, job opportunities or trying to develop some relationship where I could sell somebody's product, what I did was I 1099 and subcontract with certain companies that had products synergistic to the solutions I wanted to provide, meaning that I've got a 1099 contract with a company that allows me to do commercial energy services. I've got another subcontract with a company that allows me to do solar panels and energy management tools at HVAC. I've got another company that allows me to do merchant services. And then the final company, which is, I'm, I'm CEO and managing partner of Advanced Energies LLC. But I have another company called HVH Communications, where I'm just a managing partner. But that's the fourth business under my umbrella, which is a call center. And that allows us to bring campaigns from different products. Right now, we have Reliant Energy. We have Frontier Internet. We've got Entrust Energy. We have Vivnet Security Systems. And we've got a brand new product that's going to be coming out that's like a Roku product. And these are all based on an inbound sales campaign, meaning that we create Google AdWords, Facebook ads, Instagram ads, LinkedIn ads. And then those customers that contact us from those ads, we sell them on the product or service that they're interested in. And at the end or completion of that enrollment, we ask them if they're interested in some other product or service that we have, maybe a security system, maybe internet or so forth. So we, we, at the end of each one, we do a little cross-selling. And what that does is that allows me to generate multiple income streams as a business owner. And it allows me to 
always be able to capitalize on an opportunity by not leaving anything on the table. Because when I'm going out hunting, I've got a rifle, I've got a shotgun, I've got a bullet arrow, and I've got a big machete. So I've got all the tools to be able to close any opportunity that I run across. I know that was a lot, but there you go. All right. Well, I, I definitely understand the importance of being flexible, uh, particularly during our pandemic present, as I like to call it. And that is, so you, what I get is that you have a, a wealth of knowledge that spans two decades, uh, beyond two decades. So could you explain how people are billed for energy? Okay. So first of all, in the residential marketplace, we're talking about homes, typically there's two kinds of energy that people use in their home. It's either natural gas or it's electricity. Uh, natural gas, of course, you've got a gas meter, and then they charge you based on how many million cubic feet of gas you use per month. And, and, and so, but on the electricity side, and on that, it's a pretty straightforward bill. It's just how much gas you use. And I think that, well, I think that there is a meter charge that's associated with it, a monthly meter charge that the city charges you for having the meter because they own the meter uh, as opposed to you actually own the meter. And so you really only pay for the meter fee and then you pay for the natural gas that you use. On electricity, it's a little bit different because in electricity, you got two parts of your electricity bill. And if you look at, you know, one of your, you know, home electricity bills, you're going to see an energy charge, which your energy charge is how much electricity you use and what they charge you for that electricity you use. Because I do mostly commercial as opposed to residential. I would give you a number. These would be more like commercial numbers. But on your bill, you would say that the energy charge would be 10,280 kilowatt hours. And then it would be at 0 0.04727 kilowatt hours, which means it would be, you know, 0 0.047 cents per kilowatt hour is what the charge would be for the electricity that that customer used. And that's just that. That's one part of your bill. Now you have another part of your bill, which is called your transportation or delivery charges. And those charges don't come from your energy provider, which could be direct energy or Encore, I mean, not Encore, it could be direct energy or uh, Reliance or Ambit, or there's several different energy providers out there. But in each individual state, there's typically, you know, one or two utility companies. And the utility companies are the ones that actually own the meters and the wires that are connected to your house. So on your bill, you have an energy charge, which is how much electricity you use, and then you have a delivery charge. And this is what the utility companies charge you for the usage of their meter and their wires. And that ranges based on numbers from the state to production. So there's a lot of things that involves with the delivery charges. So when you get your energy bill, your electric bill to your home, you're going to have an energy charge. It's going to be one number. You're going to have a delivery charge. It's going to be another number. And you're going to total those two numbers up with any taxes that may be available or applicable. And then that total number is going to be what your energy bill is for that month. Wow. So it's actually two different institutions that determine how much your energy bill is a month. That is correct. 
And those and and, here, and what's funny is those institutions can be at odds and have issues, and you, the customer, uh, will, will will feel the brunt of 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 that conflict when you have nothing to do with it. <laughs> okay, so I think that kind of feeds into our next question, which is, could you explain how the supply and the demand work in the energy industry? Okay, so you got you got multiple facets of the supply and demand side of the industry because first you've got the supply side of all of the energy that's being produced that's going to be needed. The electricity is going to be needed. You've got to, you've got to, people don't realize electricity doesn't just come from out of the air. It has to come from some place. <laughs> and right now, electricity comes from a combination of fossil fuel, which is typically oil. They're reducing that a lot. Coal was one that electricity was generated from, but they've also reducing that significantly right now. Natural gas, wind, solar, nuclear, and there's a few other alternatives that are that are that are part of that mix. But but those are the main major commodities that are used to produce electricity in the United States. So based on weather conditions, based on give you a prime example, since we're in this era of the pandemic and the COVID-19. So supply issues from a industry standpoint means that if something occurs, like a tornado hits a pipeline or like the pandemic caused multiple liquefied natural gas plants to not open or to be built because employees weren't working or so forth, well, these delayed plans, which obviously Everything is based on schedules and money and who profits. Well, to make a long story short, because those plans were delayed, money had to be shifted, and of course somebody's going to pay for it somewhere. So it ends up affecting the price of the product that you're buying, which happens to be electricity. Now, on the demand side of that, from an industry perspective, not only do you have those things on the supply side that will affect electricity prices. You have things on the demand side that also affect electricity prices, which is a supply issue, meaning that during the winter months, during the summer months, you're going to use more heating devices. You're going to use more cooling devices. So you're going to put more demand on the grid. The more demand you put on the grid, the more the producers and the utility companies say, hey, they need this product, our prices are going to go up. The higher the demand, the higher the prices go up. So there's a there's a seasonal trend that you can pay attention to that typically, not always, but typically during the spring, during the fall, energy rates are typically lower because the demand is less. People got their windows open, people are outside, they're not at home as much, a lot of different reasons. Now, that's on the industry side. Now, on the consumer side, like you as a business owner or as a homeowner, the supply side and demand side issue means something a little bit different. From a user or end user perspective, the supply side means, and this is where my company provides a lot of solutions, the supply side means how much are you paying for the energy that you use, regardless if it's coming from solar panels or wind turbine or a retail energy provider, but how much are you paying for the energy that you use? And that's one of the things that we do. 
we find we build a profile on your business and your company, and then we find out what's the most efficient, cost-effective way to get you the energy that your business needs to operate. So that's a supply side solution. Now, once my company does that, and we get you, an, an example would be, let's just say you're a company, we did a profile and come to find out your company was paying 6.7 cents per kilowatt hour. We came back, found out we had a different product for you. The rate may vary some over a period of time, but over a year, you're gonna see this much of a, a significant saving. And it's going to fluctuate, but it's going to fluctuate between 4.2 and 4.8 cents per kilowatt hour. So even the highest fluctuation point is still 1.7, almost 2 cents per kilowatt lower than what you're paying right now. So now I've saved them a lot of money on how much electricity or how much they pay for the electricity they use. That's supply side on the consumer side. Now on the demand side, on the consumer side, I switch hats like I did when I was an FAE. So after I've gained credibility by helping them reduce how much they pay for the electricity that they use, I go and do an energy audit of their building to find out what can we do to reduce the energy consumption, which is how much energy they use, not what they pay for, but how much they use. Meaning going in and say maybe replacing uh, regular lights with LED lights. Or maybe they've got a 100, 500 gallon hot water tank. And throughout the day, maybe they only use 250, 300 gallons of hot water. Well, there's another 200 or 300 gallons that you're not using that you still have to heat. That's extremely inefficient. I may go in and replace that with an industrial tankless water heater system. So now not only do you not have to use an inefficient way to heat that water and distribute it, you also save money, not just on the heating cost, but you also save money on your water bill. And I'll give you an example. If you go to your house or you go to your building right now, it has a typical 50, 100-gallon hot water tank in it. You go to the furthest faucet from that hot water tank and you turn on the hot water. How long is that water going to have to run before it actually gets hot? It's typically a minute or two, if not, you know, three or four. Right. And so you're not using that water, and that water's just going down the drain. But you're paying for that water. Well, in a commercial situation where you're having to do that, that's extremely wasteful and inefficient. So by replacing it with a tankless water heater, we now improve the efficiency and we reduce the cost. Same thing with the lighting. Maybe we'll do something with the HVAC system. Maybe it's some kind of a energy management tool that just tracks how the energy is being used within the business. And then we provide scheduling on, hey, based on information from the grid, knowing that costing is going to be this, maybe it's better instead of shifting this day, you had planned to work on Thursday and Wednesday, Maybe you should shift it and work on Tuesday and Wednesday, you know, because the grid is going to actually provide you cheaper electricity during that time. So there's a lot of different ways that we can help the customer on the demand side, which has helped them reduce how much they use. So, again, supply side and demand side on the industry production side is one thing, and then supply side and demand solutions on the end user or consumer side is another. I want to thank Mr. Henderson for sharing his personal journey with us. The lesson is important. Entrepreneurship requires insatiable curiosity and self-directed education. 
If you want to create a sustainable path, then you look to solve problems that will affect future generations. In part two, we will talk more about how the industry energy works and the importance of collective consumer behavior. We'll also get Mr. Henderson's book recommendations, but I actually want to recommend a book and I want to encourage you to start reading it before you listen to part two of the interview. This book helped me to understand the relationship between federal policymaking and local implementation. That book is Short-Circuiting Policy by Leah Cardamore Stokes. Just read the foreword and then listen to part two of this interview. I am confident you will want to finish that book after you hear what Mr. Henderson says. For more information on Mr. Henderson and his myriad of businesses, go to www.mjgstorycreation.com and click the MJG Show button. If you enjoyed this episode, share it. And don't forget to like, favorite, or subscribe. Until next time, take care of each other. The M. Jason Graham Show is written and produced by M. Jason Graham. The theme was composed by Travis D. Artist. This has been the M. Jason Graham Show. I'm M. Jason Graham.